Scripture reading today comes from Hebrews chapter 9, starting at verse 11, going to verse 28. Again, that's Hebrews chapter 9, starting at verse 11. I'll give you a second to find that passage if you're looking at your device or in your Bible. And uh, the text will also be appearing on the screen as I read. Again, that's Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in the force as long as for it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once and for all at the end of ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Why are Christians obsessed with blood? We've seen about it. We recite it in our litany. We, we declare that we are washed in it. I mean, to the outside person looking in, we even, you know, claim to drink it or maybe more accurately something that represents it, right? You know, it might 
all seem a little bit barbaric and ancient, maybe, especially in our modern society. And if you were to think that, I don't think you would be alone. Uh, even the ancient Roman society thought the early Christians were, were cannibals because of the, the language surrounding communion. I mean, you know, the, the part about taking the bread, which is the body of Christ or represents the body of Christ and drinking the cup, which is his blood. And quite honestly, it's, and it's not always readily apparent uh, how certain parts of our time together on Sunday mornings might come across to those who aren't Christian. And because we ourselves, maybe we're, we're so used to hearing the same things, doing the same thing over and over. And that is until maybe we invite some of our friends, our family members uh, to, to worship. Uh, or, or maybe our own kids, as they grow up, start asking questions. And now we're thinking, oh man, this is tough. Or this is awkward. Why is the message on blood? You know, why is the passage on blood? Why, why couldn't it have been on something easier or maybe more digestible like love or the fruit of the Spirit? And I bring it up this morning because our passage, surprise, surprise, has, has to do with blood. And so this morning, there's just no way of avoiding it. The word, uh, this word shows up at least like 11 times in our passage. And, and so we're in the second part of our sermon series, Jesus is Better in the Book of Hebrews. And this second part uh, that we've been kind of working our way through these past few weeks is called A Better Redemption. Uh, it's not only important to know what Jesus did, that is that he, he saves us from our sins, right? But it's also important to know how he did it. And so in our passage this morning, the author of Hebrews is focusing in on blood, Jesus's blood. That is to say, why do we, you and I, have a better redemption? And what does blood have to do with it? One of the reasons why we have a better redemption is because not only is Jesus better, and we've been kind of hammering that in this entire time, but Jesus's blood is better. Now, for that statement to really mean anything to you and I, you know, we're going to need our Bibles. So I'm going to encourage you at home to, to get your Bibles, flip open your phones. We're, we're going to read verses 11 to 14. And you can follow along because there, there's so much to unpack here. And one of the things that's happening here is this comparison, comparison language, right? Saying things are better is a way of comparing one thing and another thing. So verses 11 to 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, again, comparison language, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if for the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will he purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? One of the first things that the author of Hebrews lays out for why the, the blood of Jesus Christ is so great is because 
the blood of Christ is an all-purpose stain remover. Now, granted, when you think about it, that statement, that description is, is a bit like an oxymoron, right? Blood is usually a stain that we're trying to scrub out, not something that we're trying to scrub with. And so when you lay out for the Frisbee disc during Ultimate on Sundays, or, or I guess more recently for the football, flag football, um, these past few few months, and you, you scrape your knee and blood gets on your shorts, you know, that's something that you want to get out, right? You know, you don't solve it by putting more blood on it to get rid of it. It doesn't work like that. And yet, in our passage, here we find this picture, this understanding of the blood of Christ as a cleansing agent. It is a stain remover. and It purifies. And it's described in this way because it's being compared to how people would try to cleanse themselves before God under the old sacrificial system in the Old Testament. And so you might remember from the sermon two weeks ago, we had these diagrams of the tabernacle. Those, that picture of the, the tent and the, the gate and the, the altar of burnt offering and all those things. And these are how the animal sacrifices were set up. And so the comparison being made here is that Jesus is better. Our redemption is better because his blood is, it is better than the blood of goats and bulls. Our passage begins with Christ being mentioned as the high priest He enters into what the author of Hebrews says is this greater and more perfect tent. So again, this language of tent, as we've been working our way through Hebrews chapter 9, should be reminding us of the tent, which was mentioned in verse 2. So again, picture the, the tabernacle, right? And there's that tent in the middle with the holy place and the most holy place. And there was a high priest there too. But this is different. He calls it a tent, but it's not one made with hands. It's not of this creation. And yet it's said that Jesus enters once for all into the holy places, which we know represents the presence of God. He he goes into the presence of God, the Father, does so on our behalf. And he does so without the same limitations given to the Levitical high priest we read about before. And again, he does so not by the blood of animal sacrifices, but by his own blood that he shed, his own sacrifice, having secured for us an eternal redemption. This was just clearly something the blood of goats and bulls couldn't do. It couldn't provide a redemption that was eternal, but only one that was temporary. And so our passage begins with this contrasting word, but. It's linking straight from the end of our passage two weeks ago. And it said there in those last few verses, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. And so you see, we can read here that the animal sacrifices under the old system, they were, they were necessary. People were still sinful. There's the problem of being able to or not being able to approach a holy God. And so they went through these ritual practices that rendered them externally, outwardly clean. But, but that was it, right? It didn't changed them necessarily, simply did what the passage references. It only purified the flesh. 
the body, the behavior, but not the heart. There was no actual transformation there. You might remember Pastor Jeff Arthur's analogy from his Christmas sermon. He, he talked about the swear jar, right? And putting the coins in one by one every time we cuss or say an expletive. But doing so doesn't actually change what was inside of us. It doesn't actually transform those underlying desires or get rid of those desires. And so these animals, again, they're not perfect substitutes for us. They're not moral creatures. Their, their purpose was only external, only superficial. So it can, it can never definitive, definitively play, take the place of men and women, you and I, who would be answerable for our conduct before God. Verses 11 to 14 talk about the, the sprinkling of the blood of these animals for defiled persons. Now, the problem here, right, is that we're not only defiled, meaning sinful, in our outward behavior, but also inwardly in our, in our conscience, in our hearts, in our attitudes, our values, the way we think. And this is where Jesus' blood is better. It is an all-purpose stain remover that really gets at that deep-rooted cause. So maybe to put it another way, Jesus' blood is the Clorox for our, our conscience. Now, again, blood, I think, as a cleansing agent is somewhat, for some of us, strange to think about. But on the other hand, it's something that our bodies do regularly, right? All that lactic acid that you're building up from working out because it's the start of a new year. You know, the blood carries it along with other toxins and waste to the kidneys for it to be cleansed. So the, the blood is part of this cleansing process. It's performing some janitorial duties, right? It's flushing things out. And in our passage, the, the comparison is being made between Jesus' blood that could cleanse our conscience and the blood of animals that could only ritually and symbolically clean what was on the outside. So it says specifically that the blood of Christ purifies our conscience, our conscience from dead works. Now, what does that mean? Right? Let's for a moment put ourselves in the, in the shoes or maybe sandals or feet of the ancient Israelites. Right? So under the old covenant, they knew where they stood with God. We read passages two weeks ago about you know, how they knew the seriousness of their own sin, how fallen they were, how, perva- how pervasive sin was and how holy God was. And now that, that even after going through the day of atonement, once a year, they would need another sacrifice as soon as that day was over. After all the animals were, were sh- uh, sacrificed, after all the blood poured out over and over and over again, they still needed more. These are the dead works that the passage is referring to day after day, year after year, doing the same rituals, knowing that at the end of it, you're still guilty. You're still in sin. You're still not completely right with God. We don't have the same animal sacrifices today, but that doesn't mean that we don't have dead works that we opt for, that we trust in instead of Jesus. It's called dead works for a couple of different possible reasons, right? We could read it as dead works because it it proceeds from deadness, meaning that it's coming from us who, because of our sinfulness, we are dead towards, our, towards God. We are dead in our rejection of God, in our rebellion against Him. We could also understand it as dead works because it's accompanied by deadness. 
meaning that our, our works, you know, no matter how good they are, no matter how, how impactful they might be to society, the motivation behind what it is that we do is completely different from someone who follows Jesus and loves God and who does the exact same thing. Because ultimately, there's probably a multitude of motivations, but at its core, the ultimate motivation is to glorify God, to praise Him, to worship Him, to obey Him, the source of life and the author of eternity. Now, lastly, it could also be a dead word because it really ends in death. So relying on these works to save us and to span the distance between our sinfulness and God's holiness is like looking at the horizon and swimming towards it, thinking we could actually reach it. But we can never. Jesus, however, is coming in and actually cleansing our conscience from dead works. How? You know, we can look now at Jesus' sacrifice. We can look at Jesus and say, and think, he took my place when everything and everyone else couldn't. Like, like the lyrics of this worship song, we can sing, now, I am guilty, but pardoned. By grace, I've been set free. I am ransomed through the blood you shed for me. I was dead in my transgressions, but life you brought to me. I am reconciled through mercy to the cross I clean. When we've accepted this, trusted in the gospel, it is a huge weight lifted. It is like a, a heavy backpack that you've been carrying for your whole life up to that moment, and it's finally cast aside. The blood rushes back to your shoulders and your back. You can stand a little straighter. You can breathe a little easier. You can maybe sleep even a little better. And there's that saying, a clean conscience makes a soft pillow. Now, this isn't the whole verse, right? Verse 14 says, does say, how much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works. But there's a second part, to, to serve the living God. And so that, that's something interesting going on there, right? There's this contrast here. You know, we might think that dead works means no works, right? Just believe and we're good. Live however we want. But instead, we see here that in order to serve the living God, we have to actually give up these dead works, we need the blood of Christ to cleanse us. In a sense, by his blood, we are being freed to serve. Freed to serve God. But here the motivation now is not out of selfishness for our own ambition or success or glory, but out of response of gratitude for what God has done. Our motivation now is not fear, but joy. If you're listening this morning and you feel that up to this moment in your life, you've been doing all these Christian things out of fear, I'm telling you with as much love and care that I can, that's not the gospel. And you are missing out. Whether it is the fear of, you know, not fitting in with the rest of the people, or maybe you have a lot of friends in church who go to church and you want to fit in, or, or it's the fear of disappointing your parents, who, who go to church and want you, you to do the same and you live under their, their roof. Or it's the misplaced fear more of hell than of anything else. That's not what this relationship with God is about. God did not save us 
so that we could serve him out of fear. That doesn't sound like having a clear or clean or purified conscience from dead works. Rather, Jesus Christ came in and became the perfect substitute for us so that we could stand before God and say, I'm with him. The blood of Christ is an all-purpose stain remover. It cleanses our conscience. It allows us to come before God. The passage continues to build out this idea of blood. So verses 15 to 22, the, the price for redemption is spilled out in blood. And so the blood of Christ does these two things in our redemption that's listed here in this passage. First, it, it inaugurates the covenant. And so the covenant is, is like a last will and testimony. And in fact, it's the same word being used here for will and covenant because the, the author wants to make that connection that analogy or the comparison. So when you have a last will and testament, there are are certain stipulations laid out, right? Maybe there are certain inheritances that will be given to remaining members of the family, but that will, those benefits only come into effect when the one who made the will passes away. So verses 16 and 17, this, the passage is making the same point about the covenant. And covenants in general back then were inaugurated with blood. Whether it was the covenant like the one between God and Abraham or the one between Jacob and Laban, the blood of these animals being sacrificed was meant to signify that the punishment for breaking the covenant was death. It was a serious matter, a serious promise since blood represents life. But it also showed that God would provide a substitute to stand in the place of those who break the covenant. Even when God made the covenant with Abraham and um, he split the, the animal in half, it wasn't Abraham who walked through. It was God symbolically walking through saying that if this covenant is broken, let it be done to me. And so the second thing that the blood of Christ does is that it covers over those who break the covenant. In verse 22, it says, there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. There is a cost to redemption, to freeing us from being enslaved to sin and death. The price for our redemption is spilled out in blood, not our blood, but Jesus's. We might say that his blood is the currency for our redemption. His sacrifices is what it costs And so over and over and over again in the book of Hebrews, the author has been hammering this in for us that Jesus is better. And one of the ways in which he is better is because his blood can cover over everyone. Now going into the new year, some of you know that inflation is ridiculously high, incredibly high. I think it's like 6.8% or something really uh, extraordinary. Now, I'm sure as some of you have been switching jobs, negotiating for salary, thinking about your end of year raises or bonuses, you're thinking now about the higher cost of living. Groceries cost more, daycare costs more, everything costs more, Chick-fil-A costs more. Inflation affects our purchasing power, right? The same dollar can't buy as much today as it could yesterday or even several years ago. Everything is more expensive except for maybe Costco's $1.50 hot dogs and soda combo or the church's $2 lunch. But we're going to leave those two things aside as extraordinary exceptions and look at everything else. You see, unlike money, though, 
the blood of Christ has a purchasing power that is not affected by things like inflation or what's going on in the financial markets. It's not even affected by which part of the world you're in, whether you're in Europe or in Mexico or in China or in America. The purchasing power of Christ remains the same. It covers over everyone completely and definitively. The the passage compares the blood of Christ to the blood of animal sacrifices under the old uh, covenant. And the message to the original readers and to us, I think are maybe the familiar words of Capital One, what's in your wallet? This is why Christians are obsessed with blood. Not because we're cannibals, we're not. Not because we have an unhealthy fascination with gore, we don't. But because blood represents life. The blood of Christ is an important part of not just what Jesus has done, but how he has done it. He has redeemed us. He has freed us. He has given us new life. Figuratively speaking, Jesus' blood is O negative. He is a universal donor for each and every one of you. Lastly, how does does Jesus' blood make for a better redemption? Our redemption doesn't need a Hollywood remake or reboot. It seems like blockbuster movies are, are more and more just remakes, reboots, and sequels, right? James Bond, Mortal Kombat, how many Spider-Man and how many Batman and Superman do we have now? A lot of remakes or reboots. And then there's sequels too, right? Even Passion of the Christ is supposedly coming out with a sequel. And now we're thinking, what? Are we just going to bring out the cross from the props again and crucify Jesus all over again? Not going to work, right? Our redemption in Christ was once for all doesn't need to be improved upon, doesn't need to be redone, recast, or re-envisioned. It was final. It was enough. It was sufficient. Jesus only suffers once for all. This idea of once for all is repeated like four times in our passage, three of which kind of show up in these last few verses. It says that, that Christ has now entered to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, and he did not offer himself repeatedly like the high priest who did so once every year, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly. No, he has appeared once for all to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus got the job done. Our redemption doesn't need a remake or reboot. Our conscience doesn't need to be cleansed again by Jesus' blood. It was good the first time. Maybe unlike how we sometimes make clean our dishes, right? We soap it up, scrub and scrub and scrub, and turns out after it's dry, we miss a bunch of spots. Now, our redemption, it does have a sequel though, and it's kind of laid out, talked about in our passage. Now, I have no idea if it's going to be like Passion of the Christ 2. Probably not. But there's already a sequel that's mentioned here. Not his suffering again, but our salvation. So verses 27 to 28, just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, 
having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Hebrews, again, right, is a reminder. Uh, it's, it's written to exhort early Christians and you and I today to remain faithful to God. To remember why Jesus is better. Not just why, but how. How is he better? And Jesus will return one day in judgment. That's what the passage says. Scripture often talks about now our, our salvation in a past, present, and future tense. Right? It's a past salvation in what Christ has accomplished by his blood long ago. It's present in that we are saved now. We are united with Christ now. And it is future in that Christ will return and he will redeem this broken world. And we will dwell with him forever. And when he returns, yes, judgment is coming. But look at how it describes those who have put their faith in Christ. They eagerly await his return. There is no dread. There's no fear. There's hope, peace, comfort, anticipation, expectation, because we know it is a good thing. This morning, we are reminded that we have a better redemption because of nothing but the blood of Jesus. His blood, which cleanses our conscience before God. His blood, which satisfies the punishment of sin reserved for us. His blood, which gives life to us and which should have been our blood that was shed. But we are saved from dead works that amount to nothing. And we are saved so that we might love God, serve and obey him, not out of fear, but out of joy. If you're joining us this morning, and again, if you feel that your conscience isn't clear, that you tried so many different things up to this point to get right, it feels like it's going nowhere. And that weight on your shoulders and on your soul gets heavier and heavier and heavier day by day. There's hope in Jesus. In love, he has shed his own blood for you. He gave his life for you as a gift. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we give you thanks because of Jesus Christ, because of the blood that was shed for us, because of his body that was broken for us, so that we might be able to stand before you and, and know that you see Jesus, that we are able to have Christ's righteousness. We pray that we would be able to respond in kind, to live out our lives in joy, not fear for you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.